morning, church. Good morning, Inesu. Anyone ever heard the, the statement or the, the hail, long live the king, or long live the queen, as it was, and she certainly did live pretty long. Um, but long live the king is now the new hail um, that I suppose rings through particularly Britain. And the reason for that hail, for that proclamation, for that whoosh, I suppose, is because we all know we don't think, we know that the king is going to eventually die because he's just a man like the rest of us. Queen Elizabeth died and everybody saw it coming. No one maybe saw how long it was going to take for her to die. She was very healthy, very active, very sharp right up until the day that she died. But it's a whoosh, it's a sentiment that... For the la one of the last remaining monarchies, I suppose, in, in the world, definitely the most famous monarchy, that, that we hear the proclamation, long live the queen, long live the king, because coronations are expensive. No, that's not why they hope that they live long, but it's a sentiment of well-wishing, of, well, of sentimentality towards this person who is going to be your king, and certainly the king or and how long the king lives has far less of a bearing today than what it would have had a few hundred years ago a few centuries ago because really in today's climate in today's political climate it's really just a figurehead um really just a a sense almost of a a sense of sentimentality but even that sense of sentimentality even the king has an entourage and we think about the coronation that just recently took place. We see that the king, King Charles, had a fairly extensive entourage from the fact that he was carried along in what probably wasn't a pure gold, but nonetheless a gold-looking chariot with these beautiful horses and, and all these guards lining the whole pathway from the palace right through to the uh, cathedral where he was eventually coronated. We see all the crowds lining the streets in, in true poetic uh, sentimentality. We see the Air Force giving him their salute of approval, if you will, and, and again a sense of an entourage to mark the momentousness of the occasion. And we see that this was all the way through the path that he was taken to the church or the cathedral, or the, the place where he was going to be coronated, crowned as king, and all the subjects, if you will, lining the streets to wish him well, or to maybe chant, long live the king. And even in the building, the cathedral itself, we see that he has a sense of an entourage behind him. I don't know how clear it, it comes up on there or not. It's not completely the point, so I'm not going to worry about it. But we see the sense of grandeur for the king, the sense of entourage, the, the, the presence that it, that it adds to the situation that, and, and the significance of the event that's taking place. And so 
In the passage that was just read for us by Brother Moulton, um, I'm busy going through the book of Ezekiel, and uh, we're going to get to Ezekiel chapter 1, but Ezekiel chapter 10 talks a little bit about the cherubim that Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel chapter 1. And certainly we see that these cherubim were an entourage plus some. Certainly made what uh, we just witnessed there for King Charles uh, almost look Mickey Mouse. And the reason is because we don't have to shout, long live our king. We don't have to wish longevity upon our king because we serve the eternal king. We serve the creator. We serve a God. We serve the God who has been, who is today, who is in our presence this morning, whether you recognize it or not, and will be forever, for all eternity, in a place where there is no time. And so this morning, the lesson is really, I'm hoping, I want to be speaking a little bit more in detail. And what I mean by that is, if we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, the writer of Hebrews says something interesting when we get to verse 5. And I'm going to start in verse 1 just to give us a little bit of context. As the writer tries to gear the mind of his readers towards the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, and all that it represented and represents to them at that time. So from verse 1, then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim of the glory, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And as he goes through the book of Hebrews, he kind of does go into a lot of detail, even though he says he doesn't have time to go into the detail. But this morning, reading that passage and, and being in Ezekiel, it got me thinking a little bit about the cherubim and what they represented and what really must have been Ezekiel's feelings and emotions and thoughts as he recognized, as he saw in the, in, in the capacity that he had as a mortal to comprehend probably closer than what we can, the glory and the power of God and his entourage, um, particularly looking at the cherubim. Now, the cherubim are not mentioned a lot in Scripture. In fact, that is every time in Scripture where the word cherub or cherubim, which is just the plural of cherub, where the word cherubim or cherub is used, to actually talk about the being of the, the cherub or the cherubim. And you might notice there, when you, when you look at that, that um, there's no mention to Exodus. And you might say, well, why is there no mention to Exodus? Because in Exodus, they were to cast the ark with the cherubim over the ark. They were to... Uh, sew or embroid cherubim into the walls of the tabernacle and the veil. And so why is Exodus missing from this list? Well, because I wanted to point out this morning, as we look a little bit 
into the detail of the cherubim and who and what they represented and what they mean to us and could pretend, what we could potentially learn from them. That is because, as you can see there, I've searched there for the sense of cherub and not the shape of the cherub. So really what we're seeing there is every verse in the Bible where the actual beings of the cherub are mentioned. And the point that I'm making is there's not a lot. In fact, Ezekiel certainly appears to be our foremost authority on the cherubim and who and what they are and what they look like. So we are introduced to the cherub, um, and also First Kings is missing, sorry, I was supposed to say that as well. So it's missing in First Kings, and obviously First Kings is relevant because that's when Solomon built the temple. And again, we saw the cherub being carved into the walls, the, the gold paneling that was put up. We saw these massive cherub that overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant, and we had the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, which has the cherub over it, also in the temple. So in, in, in Exodus and in First Kings, the word cherub or cherubim is used a lot, but really just to talk about the shape of these beings, of these cherubim. And so what I found particularly interesting is that before the tabernacle, before the mercy seat was cast, upon which Moses was told to cast cherub over the mercy seat, before the curtains were embroidered and, and put together in which cherubim were to be embroidered into the curtain, there is only one mention of the cherubim. And that is in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, when men fall, uh, we find in Genesis chapter, uh, yeah, towards the end of chapter 3, going to read it a bit later so i haven't made a point oh there you go verse 24 so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim plural it's not a cherubim there's no such thing as a cherubim because it's a cherub or multiple cherubim so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to god to god the place to god um, them from going back into the garden of eden and partaking of the tree of life and i found that interesting this cherubim had a significant place in the temple, on the mercy seat, in the Holy of Holies, and yet there is only one place before this that anybody had any experience with the cherubim. I'd suggest that maybe Adam and Eve saw the cherubim. And the only way I can understand is either Moses had some revelationary or, or some inspired vision of what they must have looked like, but I found it interesting that... A being that is not mentioned at all but once prior to the putting together of the tabernacle and has such a significant role in the presence of God and God's presence on earth is not mentioned at all except in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. And yet the Israelites understood the power of this being to a large degree, had some sense of what it looked like, if not di di directly inspired through God and Moses, that that was put in Solomon's temple it was put in the tabernacle that was built. If we look at not the word cherub, but four living creatures, because ultimately the cherubim are either referred to as the four living creatures or the cherubim in the scriptures, we see that revelation becomes sort of our text of authority almost. So Ezekiel, we find that the four living creatures are mentioned 
in Ezekiel chapter 1, and a lot of description is given to them. And then again, we see this phrase and the four living creatures, the cherubim, uh, mentioned a lot in Revelation, and they have a lot to do in Revelation. And the only way we can correlate the fact that the four living creatures are the cherubim, the entourage of God, which I'm going to get to in a moment, is by the fact that there is one, by the fact that their appearances are the same when a prophet or a writer is describing the four living creatures, it is very, very similar to the cherubim. And of course, the fact that Ezekiel quite plainly just says in all of Ezekiel chapter 1, he talks about the four living creatures with no mention of the word cherubim. And then in chapter 10, he talks about the cherubim and then he says, which were the cherubim that I saw at Lake Chabal or Kiba, however you wish to pronounce it, which is in uh, Ezekiel chapter 1. So the four living creatures and the cherubim being in harmony. Now some commentators or um, writers believe that the cherubim also relate to the seraphim, um, which Isaiah mentions. But, yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence about that. I'm not, I'm not too sure, and it doesn't make too much difference. But I did just want to throw it in here. As, as I said, this is a very detailed um, lesson into the kind of the weeds of the cherubim and the detail of the cherubim and the power of the cherubim. And so I thought I'd put in here, I'd highlight the fact that really Isaiah talks about the, the fiery serpents or the seraphim. And that word, that Hebrew word there is directly translated is just fiery serpent. In fact, it's the same word used, as you can see there in Numbers and Deuteronomy, when it talks about the fiery serpents plaguing the Israelites when they were not faithful to God. So the seraphim, is it related to the cherubim? Some writers think so, for the one sole purpose that they have the same number of wings as the cherubim in one vision of Isaiah. I'm not sure, I'm not particularly sold on that, but um, I thought I'd put it in there out of curiosity. So Isaiah mentions the seraphim, who seem to have a similar function, if not, um, if not being the cherubim at, in any way. Before I click on to the next slide, I'd like to tell you about a dream that I had. Wow, how's that for a gear shift? All right, so I had a dream a little while ago and in this dream, I have so many dreams. Ask my wife. You can already see them. Oh, here we go. Not another one of his dreams. Right. I've, I have the best dreams. If, if I wrote down my dreams, I'm sure, I've always said this, but I've been too lazy to do it. I'd have to make money. No one can have as crazy dreams as I have. I, I dream that, and it's always with what's going on. So when I'm, when I'm into a good book, it's got to do with these characters, and then these characters are in my hockey team, and then my hockey team has an injury, which is part of Shan's hockey team because I'm a manager there, and then my boss is the coach, and then, you know, I'm late for work because I was come out of this hockey game, and, oh, it is just all crazy, and that's how my dream goes. But in the dream, it's all making sense. Um... Unfortunately, Leonardo DiCaprio with um, Inception stole my idea. But it's that kind of a, and uh, that kind of, you know, when I dream, this is, it's making sense until I wake up and I think that made no sense. <laughs> Why am I telling you this? Like, is it just a segue, you know, a comedic break? But when we look at what the writers saw about the cherubim, we need to understand that these guys are seeing these beings in a vision as close to what they can come 
to comprehending the power and the glory of the Almighty God. They are not seeing what is actually physically there, because first of all, God is spirit. He is not physical. And I also think we also know that anybody who sees God will die. They just, they just cannot comprehend it. We just cannot take it in. Moses wanted to see God, and God said, mm, you can't. You just cannot. And so what these writers are writing is what they see in a vision. So as we consider the different characteristics of these beings, we need to take into account that they are seeing visions from a dreamlike experience. And so we see things like in Ezekiel and Revelation, a lot of similarities for creatures full of eyes. Um, you know, one slight difference, and I was thinking about this, and this is sort of where I wanted to tell you about my dream, where different people are different things in different environments and different contexts. You know, Ezekiel talks about four faces on each creature. And uh, in Revelation, we see that each creature had a different face. And people are so caught up on, oh, you see contradiction and they don't line up. But really, it's a matter of perspective. We don't know how Ezekiel was in this vision. And we certainly see that Ezekiel was moving around and was taken from place to place, whereas John was caught up. And even if you just think about John's vision being a more one-dimensional, he was there, he was there in the throne room, just looking into the throne room through a door. You could even just argue, well, maybe he just saw one side of the creatures and as he saw one side of each of the creatures, he would have seen a different face as they're angled differently versus Ezekiel moving around a lot. Now, whether or not that makes sense, it, it doesn't matter. These people are visioning the stuff. They're not actually seeing physical representations of exactly what's going on. They're just seeing beings that are powerful, all-seeing, in the presence of God. They have wings to protect themselves and the God from earth and from the sin and the evil in the world. They're flying about. These beings are powerful and praising God. They're in, God is in the midst of these beings. These are the throne carriers, the throne bearers of the Almighty God. In, in every aspect and context that we read about them, God is in the presence of these beings. And it is these beings that are almost being the separating factor between the perfect, almighty, or holy God and the world that has filled itself with sin because of the bad decisions that we keep making. In Ezekiel, they're named as the cherubim. In Revelation, they're not actually named. And if you do want to go with the Isaiah theory, they're called the seraphim. We see in Revelation that they have a voice like thunder. When they speak... It is like the most incredible and intense thunder where the windows rattle at the voices. And in fact, if again, to sort of move on or to continue in that possibly Isaiah theory as well, when the seraphim speak, the doorposts shake at the sound of their voice. That is the power, the immensity, the presence of these beings before the throne of God. And the last characteristic that I just wanted to kind of highlight is the fact that there is always water above or fire beneath them when it's mentioned. So in, in Ezekiel, specifically told that there is this firmament of water above them and the fire beneath the, 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 the man is told to collect coals from below the cherubim. 
Um, in Revelation, definitely the water above, we see that there is a firmament like a sea of crystal above them and uh, potentially a, a fire beneath them as well when they are told, uh, when the man, uh, uh, the angel is commanded to take uh, coals from the altar, depending on where you want to interpret the altar as being. But as we look at these characteristics about each mention, about each occasion for the seraphim, uh, for the cherubim, sorry, I found some really interesting things that I want you to consider. Neither cherubim nor seraphim is involved in the New Testament. And you might say, but you just said revelation on earth. On earth. There's no, there's nothing. I mean, not that it's a real surprise when you consider in the Old Testament, they are mentioned two, maybe three times, depending on the passage we're going to look at in a second. But the cherubim or the seraphim are not in any way involved in the New Testament. Maybe three times if we consider the man from Daniel who is the same color and um, appearance as the cherubim. So possibly in Daniel chapter 10. But the cherubim rarely seemed, and this is what I found interesting when I start looking at the correlation between the occurrences of the cherubim in the various passages in the Bible. They seem to be the separation between God and earth. That's sort of closest as to what God can get to earth through the seraphim. When we consider Genesis, if you look with me, if we'll spend some time in Genesis chapter 2 for a minute. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8, we see that... <clears throat> Genesis chapter 2 verse 8, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. So He created man, and then He planted a garden, Eden, and He took man and put him in this garden. So this garden was a special place. In fact, before the garden, we see that the trees and the grass and the things hadn't really yet grown to this almost supporting nature yet. And that's why he planted this garden in the preceding verses. And out of this garden, in chapter 2, verse 10, we read, Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads, which, reading on, basically watered the whole earth, allowing creation to thrive while Adam and Eve were in this garden. Again, you see the foresight and the planning of God. He knew what was going to happen. But interesting that we see this river went out of Eden. And what does that mean? Water doesn't flow uphill. So Eden was probably high up, closer to God, if you will, in whatever that may or may not mean, but certainly high up, this place where God was walking with man in this perfect environment, it would make sense, definitely on a, you know, Jesus rose and, yeah, well, we know the earth is round. Or was he at the bottom and he rose down? I don't, I don't know what that means. But when we think of heaven, it's looking up to heaven, looking up to God. It's the best understanding that we can have as mortals, as physical people waiting for that day when God comes for us to truly understand. But certainly we know that rivers flow down. And so this Garden of Eden was high. It was closer to God, if you will. And he took man and he put them there in verse 15. Now the Lord God took man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. So he took man from wherever man was and he put him in this place that was elevated for the water to run down closer to God, if you will. And the Lord was heard walking in the garden. This was somewhere that God 
was able to be in a physical way with man because man was without sin. And ultimately, when man sinned in Genesis 3.24, which we've read already, the cherubim were placed at this place where God had walked to protect anyone from going back in to partake of the tree of life, eternal life. It was there, the cherubim was there to protect the evil of man from the eternity of God. In Exodus, we see the ark. And we see on the mercy seat of the ark, in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 18, the cherubim were on the mercy seat. What happens on a seat? Well, we sit on a seat. We sit on a... Everyone take your seats. That means sit down. So we see the mercy seat, the seat of God, where God was to talk to Moses from. Cherubim were on that seat. And above the seat, God would meet with Moses. Below the seat was the commands to keep the people in line, to keep the people as close to God as possible. And that seat was in the Holy of Holies. And what did the Holy of Holies surround itself with? As we consider the Holy of Holies, the most perfect place, if you will, the Garden of Eden on earth almost, where God was in as close to as a physical place on earth that God could be was the most holy or the holy of holies. And we see that the sides of the holy of holies in Exodus chapter 26 and verse 1, we read, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple and scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. You shall weave them. So these curtains around the holy of holies were weaved with cherubim. And the front of that Holy of Holies was a veil. And we see in verse 31, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. So again, we see the cherubim not only on the mercy seat above which from God would speak as much as what he would and could with man in his physical sinful form, but also God surrounded himself in there by the cherubim. And in Numbers chapter 7 and verse 89, we see this whole piece coming together. In Numbers chapter 7 and verse 89, Now when Moses went into the tabernacle of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice of one speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim, thus he spoke to them. So interesting how God is speaking and communicating with man always from between the cherubim. What about Ezekiel? In Ezekiel, we see in Ezekiel chapter 1, the glory of the Lord. In the whole chapter, not once is the word cherubim used, but certainly the glory of God was among the four living creatures. And in fact, in the In the last verse of that chapter, in verse 28, we read, Like the appearance of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the brightness all around it. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And the way that that's put there, I mean, really the whole chapter talks about the glory and the light and the shining that was coming forth from these four living creatures, from the throne of God, and all that was happening, the lightning and the heat radiating from these beings 
And in verse 28, the last bit there, this was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. In other words, you know, Ezekiel is kind of confirming here in his inspired in this inspired way that this is just as close as what I could get to describing the glory of God. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. You know, possibly, maybe, hopefully, kind of sentiment here. The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And we see, ultimately, Ezekiel is one of the major prophets speaking from Babylon. Um, Judah had been completely decimated, annihilated, and exiled. And so this was a prophecy of the glory of God departing. And so we see the glory of God departed via the cherubim. Via the cherubim did the glory of God depart earth in Ezekiel chapter 10 and verse 18. And in verse 20, these are the same cherubim that Ezekiel had seen by the river Kiba, which is what um, Ezekiel chapter 1 uh, the whole place takes the whole scene that vision, the whole vision that Ezekiel sees takes place at the river Kiber in Ezekiel one one. I came to pass in the thirteenth year in the fourth month on the fifth day of the month as I was among the captives by the river Kiber. So we see Ezekiel likening those four living creatures to the cherubim, and of course in Revelation the progression of man to salvation. This in Revelation chapter 4, which is the throne room of God, where we're introduced, surprise, surprise, to the cherubim as John looks through the door and he sees the four living creatures before God and before the throne of God. And he sees the sea separating John, man, from God. And then as we move on in Revelation chapter 15, verse 2, we see the sea mixed with fire and the saints on the sea, the saints through Christ are able to come that little bit closer to God. And ultimately, as the final day comes in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1, we see that there is now no more sea between man and the cherubim and God. And the cherubim and the rivers. In uh, Genesis chapter two, 1, 2, and 3, we see that the cherubim appeared by the river Pishon. Pishon, the word means to multiply or great diffusion, to disperse. In Ezekiel, we see that the cherubim appear by the river Kiba. Kiba means to multiply or to grow, to, uh, uh, to, to become abundant. So again, to multiply and to multiply. And ultimately, in Revelation, we see the cherubim appearing by the river of life. And so we also see this progression of man through the Bible, where we are separated from God. And told to go and multiply because he loves his creation. To Ezekiel after the exile man at the arguably lowest point in, or the church man. The lowest point when compared, comparing us to the physical Israel. As Israel had completely left God. But God still saying that I will come back. I will come back once you repent. I will not completely leave you. And then ultimately we see the full salvation that man can attain through the river of life, the cherubim before the throne of God at the source of the river of life. And so we see the cherubim appearing where that opportunity for eternal life was protected by the cherubim. We see God leaving earth and we see God coming back in the form of his son between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. I want you to think about that between the throne and the living creatures 
and the elders who was the saved in that midst, in that glory, in that place of holiness, John sees a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, basically the horn, a sign of power and eyes, the sign of seeing, all seeing and all powerful, uh, which are the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth in the midst of the glory of God, in the midst between God and the cherubim, the throne and all and the throne bearers. There is Jesus Christ sent into the world to bring us into that relationship with God. You see, Jesus is our lamb. He was the one that tore down that veil. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 through 54, we see that event, that monumentous, that incredible, that would have been an earth-shattering event for the, for the priests at the time taking place. The master of the, uh, sorry, verse 27, chapter 27, chapter 27, verse 54, verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple, the veil that was supposed to have been um, embroidered with cherubim and seraphim. I don't know if it would have been at this point in time because this was Herod's temple. Nevertheless, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom and the earthquakes quaked and the rocks were split. Our lamb from before God amidst the cherubim came to this world to die to save our souls that we can be in a relationship with God that no longer will the cherubim have to protect us from God or God from the sin of man if I could word it that way with a bit of poetic license. In Matthew chapter 28 verse 1 through 5 now after the Sabbath as the first day of the week began to dawn Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to, the tomb, to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow, and the gods shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen." We serve a risen Savior. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is to come. And they gave the same praise to Jesus in Revelation chapter 5. In, Revel in Matthew chapter 28, we see that Jesus has, was risen. Jesus was risen as he said he rose to save our souls, to bring us into the presence of the almighty God. Albertus Magnus, I really like this quote, said, It was indeed a work of great love that the Son of God joined, himself, joined to himself our clay. In other words, Christ became mortal flesh. He, the creator became a part of his own creation. And when he had joined himself to it, he raised it, his creation, above the cherubim and seraphim, and he did that through his sacrifice and through his death. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Christ, off Christ offers us this salvation through his resurrection. We have the opportunity to be in the presence of the eternal king with all his powerful entourage if we accept 
Jesus and this truth and the power of God and his incredible love for our souls. I ask that you consider this as we stand and have our closing hymn today. Thank you.